Hello, my name is Dr. Steven Stanis. I'm the Medical Director of the Swedish Pain Services and Medical Director of Occupational Medicine Services at Swedish Health System in Seattle, Washington. Thank you for taking time away from your busy schedule today to join us for this live, on-demand activity, Insights into the Assessment, Prevention, and Management of Opioid-Induced Constipation. This activity is brought to you by CME Outfitters, a best-in-class accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians around the world. Today's program is being streamed live and will be archived at cmeoutfitters.com. And I encourage you to share this resource with colleagues or team members who were not able to join us today. I also encourage everyone to join in on our live Twitter conversation using hashtag OICMedEd. We will be monitoring the Twitter feed and responding to your tweets as they come in. And don't forget to stay with us for our after the show segment when you're invited to call or email us with your questions or cases. Our goal is to ultimately help you improve the lives of your patients. So please submit your cases, questions, and feedback. And with that, welcome to our show. With me today are my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Anthony Lembo, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Department of Medicine, Division of Gastroenterology at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you, Steve, pleasure to be here and Dr. Zorba Pastor, Adjunct Professor of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health in Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show, Zorba. Great to be here. Let's start by reviewing our learning objectives for our program today. First, we wanna create and employ a strategy to adequately identify and diagnose opioid-induced constipation, or OIC. Next, we wanna assess and select treatment options for patients with opioid-induced constipation. Finally, will execute a communication plan for routinely asking patients about their bowel patterns while on opioids in order to identify, prevent, and monitor opioid-induced constipation. Before we begin, let's ask our audience a question. You'll see the question on your screen. Which of the following is an opiate effect on the GI tract? A, decrease of absorption of fluid from the gut. B, decrease intestinal secretions. C, decreased sphincter tone, or D, increased defecation reflex? Please provide your answer now. We will take a look at the results in a few moments. Now, Zorba, there are a whole host of potential effects from opioid use. What are some important potential effects that we as clinicians should look for in our patients? Well, I think, Steve, when we're prescribing opioids, what we really want to do is look at the potential effects and the side effects. The one effect we're looking for, obviously, is analgesia, but there are side effects here also. Respiratory depression being a very significant side effect, especially with people who smoke, people who are the elderly, people who might have other medical problems. That's an issue. Pruritus. Itching is an issue because many patients stop their opioids because they think they're allergic to it, when in fact pruritus is simply a side effect of opioids. And then there is the central effect of a decrease in anxiety and so on and a change in self-esteem, the mental effects of opioids that we kind of also have to be aware of when we're prescribing opioids. And let's, of course, think about constipation. 
there's obviously a lot of different things happening with what Absolutely. opioids are doing. Um, I, I wanted to ask though, respiratory depression in itself, um, what are the things we should be really looking for? Because obviously that's the, oh, it's the number one cause it of death with opioids. And one of the issues is that there's a lot of sleep apnea out there that we don't even recognize because we haven't sent them to our sleep specialists and actually had a sleep apnea evaluation. And it's very important that we think about respiratory depression and sleep apnea at the same time, asking our patients some of the questions we do about sleep apnea. Are there snoring? If you're with a spouse, is your spouse noted that you're not breathing in the middle of the night and so on? Because these are issues. Older age is a big issue. So patients who are 75 and older, 65 and older, opioid naive patients, very important to make sure that we start low and go slow so we're not giving too much with that. And of course, obesity. Big problem in America, big problem when we're prescribing opioids because they may lead to even more respiratory depression. Well, thank you. Uh, now, first, I want to turn to the results of our questions. Uh, here are the um, results, and I'll break this down by percentage for my guests. Uh, uh, a, decreased absorption from the fluid gut, 32% voted for that. 36% uh, voted for B, decreased intestinal secretions. 20% voted for C, decreased sphincter tone. And 10% voted for D, increased defecation reflex. Tony, Zorba, any comments on uh, our audience's response? Well, I think uh, the majority, uh, the, well, the largest uh, group was voted for B, which is the correct one, because it does decrease uh, secretions within the GI tract. Um, with the, the second largest group voted for A, which is a decrease in absorption. Actually, it increases the absorption. That has to do with the fact that it decreases motility, so there's a longer period of time that uh, contents are within the in the colon, so you can get an increase in absorption. So you uh, get a harder stool, correct. <coughs> harder and a stool that has been in there longer. Right, less water mm -hmm. in it, and it does increase the sphincter tone. Um, so I think C is it's not a, it's not a decrease, and, and it decreases the defecation reflex. Good. Uh, Zorba? Yeah. They really, I mean, it really shows you that uh, many ways the questions are all over the, or the answers are all over the place, which is why we're sitting here with CME <laughs> to try to really show what can be useful in terms of treating constipation that's associated with opioids. So, Tony, how common is OIC, and what are uh, physicians, and as, as a GI specialist, what do you see commonly with patients? Well, Steve, OIC is, is common. Uh, mainly because opioid use is very common in the United States. Uh, estimates of almost 14 million people within the United States alone are on long-term opioid use, and we know that in addition to its effects, the effects of opioids on analgesia, which is through the central nervous system, within the GI tract, opioids can impair motility, which can lead to constipation. It's the most common side effect that we see uh, with opioid use. So it is a, it is a very big problem. With regard to uh, most commonly used treatments or initial uh, treatments, we tend to use lifestyle modifications uh, first. We increase fiber and fluid, uh, and then we turn to our laxatives, our OTC laxatives, osmotic and uh, stimulant uh, laxatives as the first-line agents, knowing that for many of these patients, they won't get satisfactory relief with, the, with these therapies alone. So, so Zorba, t Tony obviously gave us his uh, overview of, from a GI specialist standpoint, 
as a primary care physician, what do you see with patients with OIC? Well, the first thing is, if you don't ask about it, you're not going to get the answer. And so our patients do not like to discuss their gut. They don't like to discuss their poop. They don't like to discuss whether or not they have constipation. So it's very, very important to actually talk about it because it's troublesome to them. And they'll often alter the, the, uh, the medications that they're taking in order to help prevent or treat their constipation when, in effect, this often isn't the right thing that they actually should do. The other issue is that tolerance to opioid induce uh, constipation does not occur. So over time, if you're taking it for a long period of time, you still have that constipation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's the most important side effect that we can talk about to our patients because it is the most common and it is the most troublesome. Okay, so I, I know we kind of jumped into the side effects of opioids. I would ask, how do opioids work oh, from sure, an analgesic sure. standpoint? Are there other effects? They really work. We can look at it in two general ways. Opioids primarily exert their analgesic effects via the central nervous system and the mu opioid receptors. But mu opioid receptors are also in the gut, all over the gut. And so opioid-induced constipation is mediated by the mu opioid receptors in the gut. And you can't separate one from the other because that's what happens when we take uh, any narcotics, uh, any opioids at all because they're affecting both receptors. The analgesic effect uh, just, once again, centrally is mediated through these mu opioid receptors in the central nervous system and in some of the peripheral receptors also. So, Tony, I know you weren't going to escape this. As a GI specialist, how do opioids actually work? What are the effects on, this, on the gut? So, as mentioned, you know, constipation is the most common effect, but actually they have effects throughout the entire GI tract, both upper as well as the lower where the constipation effects occur. In the upper GI tract, we see a number of different uh, symptoms, including reflux or heartburn, abdominal pain, spasm, bloating, decreased appetite, nausea, and vomiting are just some of the symptoms that are associated with upper GI effects on motility and secretion in the GI tract. Specifically, the mechanism of action of mu, opioid, of mu of opioids on the mu receptor in the GI tract include a decrease in motility as shown in this slide, and, and again, not only in the colon but also in the small bowel and stomach. It increases absorption of fluid uh, from the gut, but that's predominantly occurring in the, in the colon because of de decrease in transit. There's decrease in secretions throughout the entire GI tract. You see an increase in the sphincter tone, particularly the anal sphincter tone, and a decrease in the defecation reflex, so patients tend to go to the bathroom less often, and they have less of an urge to go because the sensations are decreased in the, in the rectum as well. So, Tony, I, I have a question. <clears throat> in terms of the upper gut, we'll say in the lower gut, do you think there's more nausea associated with this and bloating, or is there more constipation? What bothers people more? Well, I think you've already indicated that constipation is what is the most bothersome symptom that patient ha patients have, but they also have a wide variety of symptoms. So when someone says they're constipated, they mean different things, and they and it's important, as we'll talk about later, uh, what to, uh, symptoms to ask patients, but they include bloating, distension, abdominal pain, uh, discomfort, and patients you know, don't often come in saying, I, I want more bowel movements. What they want is fewer right. symptoms. <laughs> so it's yeah. the symptoms that they're complaining about. So you as a GI specialist really see the same thing that I do as a primary care doc and that constipation is really the overlying problem when we, uh, when we give opioids, opioid-induced yeah. constipation. And it's, and it's obviously important that constipation is not just how many bowel movements you're having. And obviously we're going to talk a lot more about that. Correct. Right. So, so Zorba, uh, kind of this is a good segue. With OIC, uh, a patient presents with OIC. Besides the opioid, what are other things you're considering 
um, with those patients in your practice? Well, the first thing you want to do is get a good, accurate med list. Are there other drugs that are contributing to this? And what's important about that med list is to have people bring all their pills in with them so that you can look at their prescription medications and you can look at the alternative remedies. Because many of our patients are using nutraceuticals and biologicals, uh, and you've got to ask them about that specifically. Even when I get a, a, the medications in, they'll bring, we'll say, a shopping bag with their medications if they're a lot. I still ask them, are they taking anything else? Because often people are embarrassed to tell us that they're taking alternative remedies for this, such as colon cleanser, you know, tablets that might cost $100 a month. Uh, we then also have to look at any other issues. Are they exercising? What sort of lifestyle factor do they have? People with chronic pain often don't eat the same way as other people. They're sitting around more. They're not exercising. Uh, that can be an issue. And then, of course, if we're dealing with people with chronic pain and any kind of dementia, any kind of memory loss, that can also be an issue that has to be addressed. So, um, so th this m makes me uh, start to think th that relationship between constipation and pain management, how do you feel constipation impacts uh, a patient's ability to manage their pain? Well, if they're constipated, they're often going to alter their pain management medication because they know that's part of their constipation. And then they come into our office and then they say to us, gee, my pain is not controlled, but they haven't necessarily told us, unless we've asked, that they've actually altered it. So I think what's critical is that we as primary care docs have to address both things simultaneously when we're prescribing drugs, both the opioid that we're prescribing and the opioid-induced constipation. And, and there's been some studies in this area? Um, yes, what? yes. So this is an example. This is a good study. 500 patients with pain and constipation. And we looked at what constipation had as an effect, and it interfered with the adherence of pain medications in half the patients. So half the patients actually changed or interfered with their opioids that they had because of that. 46%, so it's almost half again, adjusted their pain medications before they came in. So once again, the constipation, if you look at it, is actually decreasing uh, their pain management because we're not addressing the constipation properly. And once again, when you take opioids, as long as you take them, you're going to continue to get constipation. You do not adjust to it. Okay, so uh, Tony, now as a gastrointestinal specialist, uh, how do you think um, OIC affects uh, healthcare utilization, patient outcomes, uh, patient satisfaction, all those things obviously very important in our current state of healthcare. Sure. Well, in my clinical practice, you know, I've seen um, patients with OIC have a decrease in quality of life. They tend to use more medications. And they tend to see uh, more um, uh, consultation from other uh, providers. And I tend to see a more refractory group of patients. But if you look at this study uh, that was an Internet-based study in the United States, um, where patients were asked about, uh, and patients who were, who had, who were on chronic opioid use, uh, the patients who had OIC in this group tended to seek more health care visits from physicians as well as from alternative care providers, as shown here. And importantly, it also, they also reported a uh, decrease in their overall quality of life and a decrease in their uh, work productivity, which is actually something we don't measure very often. So it has a, a significant negative impact uh, on both their quality of life as well as their economic, uh, economically as well.
You know, and I think when we look at the alternative care visits, it's important to gently ask our patients about it because sometimes they won't tell us about it because they know we may not be interested in that part of their lifestyle, but they are because the use of alternative care is a multi-billion dollar a year industry and they know that we doctors are not specialists in alternative care. So gently asking those questions will get a good answer as to whether or not they're taking something else. And quite often, we don't know what's in those medications, those pills. It may say something on the bottle but it's not regulated in the same way by the FDA, and so it's important to look at that in terms of uh, other things that may contribute to their constipation. And so we did a study, uh, not specific for OIC, but in the GI clinic just to query our patients coming through, uh, whether they were seeking alternative, using alternative care uh, or alternative medications and, and uh, seeing alternative doctors. And you know, about half of them actually were or had over the past year used it. And we also asked... Um, had they discussed it with their doctor, and if not, why not? And what was most interesting about this study was that um, many of them said they did not discuss it because their doctor was uninformed and didn't, <laughs> could, you know, didn't know about their medications, uh, the alternative medications. So we need to be better educated right. uh, as right. a profession because our patients are using these. Oh yeah, and I, and I think in our practice, what I've learned is, you know, I actually I ask the patient to bring in the packages, the bottles of mm -hmm. those things they're using. Then you learn about it. You're, uh, uh, in a sense, supporting what they're doing, or else you're going to help to educate. Right them as well as yourself. Right. So, I definitely think this very is a very good take-home message to anyone who works uh, with any of our you know, patients, be it in specialty care or primary care. Ask them to bring everything in so you can look at all of it and then you'll, then you'll get a better idea of what they're taking. And that being said, you know, I've often asked, I do the same thing with my patients and those who have OIC or chronic constipation, um, when we go over their the laxative of the herbs that they're using. In fact, it really is the same laxatives that we have available OTC. It's mm -hmm. mainly the Senna products, the Cascara, uh, the Sokotal, that are the active ingredients. And usually they'll add a number of different other ingredients as well, mm -hmm. uh, but the active ingredient is what we have available to ourselves. And yeah, I think that kind of makes that nice link between you and the patient and, and what you're Absolutely. trying to accomplish. Sure. So. sure, the link of trust. Yep. Okay, so uh, we presented data showing uh, that OIC is prevalent issue in our patients on opioids. Uh, we discussed the interface between opioids, uh, OIC, healthcare utilization, uh, and outcomes. Uh, let's now move on to our second learning objective, which focuses on assessing and treating patients with OIC uh, before we can cover our third learning objective, uh, which will focus on how we communicate to patients. So before we discuss assessment uh, and treatment options, I'd like to ask our audience another question, uh, which may lead to a, an important teaching point. Again, you'll see the question on your screen. Which of the following agents increases intestinal secretions? A, stimulants, B, methylnaltrexone, C, lubiprostone, or D, naloxagol? Please vote now. We'll have the results in just a few minutes and we'll discuss these results with you. So Zorba, uh, let's start with non-pharmacologic and uh, over-the-counter treatments for opioid-induced constipation. Uh, can you review the options uh, that patients use and, and how they treat constipations? Are they effective? Absolutely. Lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. We want to encourage our patients to eat a more Mediterranean diet, a diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables. You know, not simply corn is the only vegetable and iceberg lettuce. Uh, make sure that they increase the fiber in their diet. They stop buying refined sugars, white bread, things like that. They're just good things to do. Uh, exercise, very important because we know that when we exercise, not only is it good for the body, it's good for the gut. So I think that's really always our first step to reinforce that. Our patients 
get good information from us that adds to our credibility. And then we can look at over-the-counter agents, uh, things such as uh, uh, things such uh, as uh, Metamucil, uh, not Metamucil, I'm sorry, psyllium. Uh, psyllium, the most common thing that people use, and they can also use propylene, uh, pro uh, propylethylene, polyethylene glycol. Uh, very commonly used. We want to look and see what that is. The surfactants such as uh, DSS that can also be used. See what sort of over-the-counter agents. Um, rectal interventions such as enemas uh, are not something that we really want to uh, encourage our patients to do. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there are other medications that we can use that are more of a prescription medication. So, right, I think it's just worth mentioning um, the different types of like osmotic agents. You alluded to right. polyethylene glycol, which is most commonly sold as Miralax um, over the over the counter. But there are others. I mean, there. The, the osmotics generally are poorly absorbed uh, products, like polyethylene glycol is not well absorbed and uh, stays in the gut. It absorbs, takes in water with it. Other things like uh, the cations can do it, so, such as mm -hmm. magnesium um, is a common one. So people uh, mm -hmm. different types of magnesium mm -hmm. exactly um, are available as well, and they're probably um, not maybe not as effective, but mm -hmm. they also uh, are effective. Um, phosphate is the other one that's we we've used those in the past for. Uh, colonoscopy preps, but they had some issues associated with it. With regard to stimulants, they're not all the same either. And um, this is oftentimes an important point that I tell my patients, which is that they're really um, three big types of categories of stimulants, and of course there are more, but these are the big categories, and you should always look at the box to tell you. So the, the most gentle stimulant is a Senna-based stimulant, right. and there's different forms, Senna-Cot, Senna. Uh, there's various types of it. Uh, then the next most common and uh, potent is bisacodyl. Okay, and then the third one is cascara. Okay, cascara is really reserved for the very refractory patients. It's very crampy. So is bisacodyl, by the way. It's crampy, but cascara is even more so. So there are three different types. Most patients want to stay in the center of the bisacodyl range and to start with center and move there and move their way up. Um, so it's just good to remember. So what do you think is the most common over-the-counter medications? The number one and number two oh. that. Uh, well, I don't actually know the exact mm -hmm. numbers, but I think in our practice we see uh, more of the um, polyethylene glycol being right. used. Um, more and more. More and more. Uh, the one prescription mm -hmm. uh, chronic constipation drug that's in that category is lactulose. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there have been a couple of head-to-head -head studies, and, have and those have favored polyethylene glycol over uh, lactulose, which we don't use very commonly. It's more expensive. It's a prescription. Um, and it's more costly for the patient as well, and not more, not any more effective than polyethylene glycol. Okay, so um, Zorba reviewed the non-pharmacologic intervention, some of the OTCs. Thank you, Tony, for kind of giving us an overview of the mechanism of action of a lot of those OTCs, which I uh, assume a lot of times physicians were not really sure of what those mm -hmm. actual mechanisms are. Um, with that background, what are the uh, prescription strength? Uh, available products that are FDA approved for OIC in, in the different classes of those of that group of medicines. Right. So, so there are really only just two big categories that are FDA approved for OIC: the chloride channel activator uh, and the peripheral acting mu opioid receptor antagonist, so-called uh, Primoras. Uh, within the chloride channel activator class, the only drug that's approved is lubiprostone, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Uh, within the Pomora class, there are several that have been approved. Uh, with uh, um, f that have been approved uh, for OIC, the only two that have been approved are, are methylnaltrexone and naloxagol. In addition, alvimapan has also been approved for post-op ileus in, the, in a combination of the naloxone plus uh, oxycodone has also been approved for the treatment of pain. So uh, can we start first with uh, the 
uh, chloride channel activator, lubiprostone. Uh, how does that work? Sure. So uh, lubiprostone is a, a CLC2 or chloride type 2 channel activator. Um, and those, uh, that, those channels, all, most chloride channels, uh, are located on the apical membrane of the GI tract. Uh, so it, by opening up that channel, as shown in this slide here, uh, you have a, chloride is released into the lumen of the GI tract. And chloride, being a negatively charged, charged anion, attracts sodium, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, then sodium and chloride bind together, and that causes an increase in an osmotic flow, and that causes water to go through, uh, to go into the GI tract uh, as well. So you have uh, an increase in secretions in the GI tract, and now most of that secretion is, is reabsorbed, but that does cause an increase in motility of the GI tract. And so at the end of the day, you're left with an increase in the frequency and an improvement in the consistency of stools. You have a looser stool. Um, but so it's a consistency and a movement. In other words, both things are, are really attended right. to by this particular medication. Exactly. And studies have shown an acceleration in small bowel as well as colonic transit with this. And it is, as mentioned, it's FDA approved for OIC. It's also FDA approved for irritable bowel syndrome with constipation in women. And the dose is actually a little bit lower for IBSC in women. There it's approved for at 8 micrograms twice daily. In contrast, for OIC and chronic idiopathic constipation, or CIC, uh, the FDA-approved dose is 24 micrograms uh, twice, uh, twice daily. Okay. Uh, also, can you go over some of the efficacy data for uh, lubiprostone from their phase 3 data? Sure. sure. So, so uh, shown on this slide is, are, the, are the results from one of the three uh, phase three clinical trials. And what was unique about this clinical trial, it was just recently published, uh, was that it included patients that received all types of opioids except for methadone, in contrast to the other two clinical trials that included all types of opioids. All, uh, all types of opioids. And these are patients that had OIC um, and by definition had infrequent stools. And what was also notable is the primary endpoint, which is kind of a unique endpoint, but one which we'll come through, we'll come, we'll see again in some of these other clinical trials, so it's worth going over. And in order to be a responder uh, for this clinical trial, you had to, you had to uh, within a given week, you had to have more than three bowel movements. And they had to be spontaneous or SBMs, in other words, not induced by a laxative. Mm -hmm. Okay, so SBMs, so more, three or more SBMs in that week, and had to have an increase of one SBM over their baseline level, all in the same week. And they had to meet that endpoint for nine out of the 12 weeks. And the significance of having three, more than three SBMs is that falls within the 95% confidence interval of what in the U.S. Uh, is our. Our, our frequency of bowel movements. So in other words, the 95% confidence is somewhere between three bowel movements per, per week and three per day. So this pretty much brings them into the normal uh, range. And there are, are other secondary um, endpoints to which um, were, were assessed as well. And if you go to the next slide. So just getting back to that, so they had to show an improvement over their baseline. In other words, when they were on the study, I think that's an important thing. So these are patients who suffered from opioid-induced mm -hmm. constipation, and then they improved with the medication Correct. in a double-blind placebo-controlled yeah. trial. Correct, right. and it's kind of a confusing right. endpoint. I know that's not that it's not. Uh, but I think the ninety-five percent confidence—we know what that means mm -hmm. as a bell-shaped curve—and I think that's what sometimes confuses us as primary care docs. Three per week is an acceptable amount of bowel movements to have. Correct, and that's what we as clinicians uh, can put in the back of our mind as a goal with patients, do you think, three? Um, it, is, it is a goal. Ultimately, mm -hmm. you're looking for patient satisfaction. So mm -hmm. for each person, it, it will be different. Right. Um, 
but of course in any clinical trial you have to have an outcome measure that can be assessed um, and this is one that's been uh, generally accepted by the uh, FDA. Okay. So, and it's a fairly rigorous endpoint. Don't forget, meeting, having a normal number of bowel movements for someone who has pretty refractory uh, OIC uh, for nine out of the 12 weeks is a, actually a pretty high uh, hurdle. And I think if you look at the results, uh, this is for the primary endpoint, you can see, but first, if you just notice the placebo uh, rate being relatively low for a constipation-related trial, and that just shows you how rigorous the endpoint is. And you can see that the lubiprostone group that received 24 micrograms twice daily met that endpoint, a greater percentage of patients met that endpoint uh, versus those that received placebo. Um, and and it's also worth mentioning that they also met many of the secondary endpoints, mm -hmm. which included uh, stool, improvement in stool consistency uh, and frequency and decrease in strain, too. Now, from a safety standpoint, can you comment on the uh, adverse effects from those studies? Sure. So if you, if you go to the, you know, the next slide, it, this reviews some of the, the most common adverse events associated with it. And top on the list is nausea. You can see it occurring about 11% of patients versus 5% placebo. One of the things that's interesting about nausea is that actually in the CIC trials, or the chronic idiopathic constipation trials, the rate of nausea was actually higher than we mm -hmm. saw in OIC. No one actually knows the reason for that. But it's also worth noting that the nausea is relatively transient in most patients, relatively mild. And in this study, um, only about 2% of patients actually withdrew because of the nausea. Um, so a relatively small number of patients withdrew. withdrew. The other side effects included you know, uh, diarrhea, which is a, an expected um, you know, adverse event, as, if you would, uh, for the drug that increases stool frequency and improves sure. stool consistency in patients. So it's not too surprising to mm -hmm. see that. And you know, when I look at this chart, I think one of the other things that stands out to me is that 89% of the people did not have nausea. That's important for us as clinicians mm -hmm. to realize. And we look at the fact that 92% of the patients did not have diarrhea. And that's mm -hmm. very important as we're actually counseling our patients. You know, it's going to be roughly this number of people. You've got a 92% chance you're not going to have uh, diarrhea, but there's a chance that you will have, you know, you will have it. And this, you know, just talking to them and communicating that with them at that time about possible side effects helps them then tolerate the medication we're giving. Right. I agree with any medication that, that those couple minutes of, uh, of advice and a, a kind of a setup it can really help right. your outcome. Uh, and that those patient expectations are so right. important. Because right. they get information from their pharmacist, but if you look at the list of what comes out from the pharmacy, it's as long as a document that you sign when you get a rental car. You know, it's just right. very, very long. It's what we tell them in the clinic that makes the biggest difference, and that tends to be the thing that they remember. Yeah, and what's not shown here, of course, as I've already mentioned, the number of people that withdrew, because that gives you, uh, due to that side effect, that gives you an estimate of how severe the symptoms are. And having 2% withdraw because of nausea suggests that for most people it's pretty mild. Same thing with diarrhea, about the same percent, about 2% withdrew because of diarrhea. Okay, so uh, Zorba, uh, Tony's, you know, reviewed uh, lubiprostone, the chlorochinol activator. The other class, uh, the uh, peripherally acting mu uh, receptor antagonist, or PAMORAs, uh, can you can you comment on how those oh, work? Sure. Uh, opioids, uh, as we mentioned, primarily exert analgesic effects via the central nervous system mu opioid receptors. Pemoras have limited penetration of the brain-blood barrier. And what's important here is that, in other words, pemoras really do not have a significant effect on the analgesic effect of opioids, so they're affecting the peripheral system in the gut with really out, without crossing the brain and affecting the brain and decreasing the opioid efficacy. And I think that's, that's the important issue. So, Tony, with that background from Zorba, uh, can you tell us about um, uh, the first FDA-approved uh, Pomora uh, methanotrexone? Sure. 
So methyl naltrexone, as you mentioned, is the first FDA-approved uh, drug for OIC. It was approved in 2008 um, for patients with advanced illness, generally less than six months uh, to live. And, and it was proved predominantly on the results of this clinical trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And as you can see, uh, that <clears throat> these were patients who had refractory OIC, they had insufficient response uh, to laxatives and had advanced illness. And what's most notable is the percent of patients that had a laxation or a bowel movement uh, within four hours of taking the medication. In many cases, it was within 15 to 20 minutes after taking the hmm. medication, and 48% met that endpoint versus only 15% receiving uh, placebo. And you can see the median time to uh, having a bowel movement after the first dose was only six hours versus greater than 48 hours um, with uh, placebo. So since then, uh, the medication has been approved for non-cancer pain, and the dose has been at 12 you know, milligrams um, to be given once a day uh, for it. So it's also been available. And with regard to side effects associated with it, we see... I, I had one question. Yeah. This is sub-Q, and it's available in hospitals, or how, how are you... Uh, yeah, that's a good point. So it's a sub-Q medication. I should have mentioned that. Um, and it's currently only available as a sub-Q medication, although there have been cl uh, clinical studies that have been published uh, presented uh, on the oral form, but not yet available. Okay. And I'm sorry, then you're, you're going to talk about some of the, I think, the safety issues? Yeah, so I was going to show effects. you. So this just shows you the safety issues, and this was on the 12 milligram dose for non chronic non cancer pain patients. And you see very similar side effects that we saw with uh, lubiprostone. And some of these are, you know, can be attributed to the um, uh, to the pharmacology of the drug by increasing contractions of the GI tract and increasing movement through, you're going to see patients complain of pain and cramp cramps and pain, as well as diarrhea. Also, seen a slightly higher rate of nausea uh, with this and some other side effects, like including vomiting associated with it. Okay, now, now I understand there's a, an additional Pomora or naloxagol. Can you uh, go over that? Um, uh, efficacy data and some of the uh, safety data with that. Yeah, so naloxagol was, was recently approved in 2014, again, for non-cancer pain with patients with uh, OIC. And uh, this slide just re reviews uh, the results of two uh, phase three clinical trials, and this result was published in the, also published in the New England Journal this time in 2014. These studies so were these were the clinical trials necessary for FDA approval? Correct. So the two phase three clinical trials good, good for uh, FDA approval. If you look here, the, the primary endpoint is very similar to what we saw for uh, Luviprostone, requiring at least three spontaneous bowel movements per week and an increase of one um, bowel, spontaneous bowel movement per week in the same week for nine out of 12 weeks. And it also required the addition of you had to be a responder for three out of the last four weeks of the clinical trial. So a little bit different, a little bit more rigorous uh, of an endpoint uh, than we saw with the Luviprostone trial, but very similar to it. There were two different doses, uh, the 12.5 and the 25 uh, milligram dose. Uh, this, again, is oral, uh, given once a day. And you can see the results here. About 29% of patients responded at receiving placebo uh, versus somewhere between 40 to 44% uh, in the clinical trials at the 25 micrograms and slightly less at the 12.5 uh, uh, milligram dose. And um, currently uh, approved at the 25 milligram dose, and you can reduce down to 12.5 if uh, they don't tolerate the 25. Okay, so we've uh, talked about uh, the Pomoras, uh, the FDA-approved uh, Luviprostone, Naloxagol. Um, what are some of the other emerging uh, technologies or agents? Yeah, first let me just review that some of the uh, adverse okay. events uh, associated with it, the safety events. And again, they're very similar to what we've seen of pain and diarrhea. Um, again, flatulence are just some of the common ones that, that were reported, but again, very similar to what we've seen with the other uh, Pomoras. 
So uh, with regard to the emerg uh, emerging therapies, there are additional Pomoras that are in uh, development, and um, this is nomendidine is probably the closest to, be, uh, to, to uh, being developed. Um, and so we'll probably will see that in the in the near future. Um, Linaclotide, which is a uh, guanylate cyclase C or GCC agonist, uh, so similar to lubiprostone, uh, it uh, opens up this channel and through a second messenger causes it, it opens up the uh, CFTR, so another chloride channel, and causes an increase in secretions in the GI tract. It, it is undergoing clinical studies right now in OIC, but it is FDA approved. Uh, for chronic idiopathic constipation and IBSC, and the dosing uh, for that uh, is 145 uh, micrograms for chronic idiopathic constipation and 290 micrograms both once a day for IBSC. So, uh, if I read you correctly, we really have we have several different drugs that are being tested that are coming down the line, and we as primary you know care docs who often care uh, do a lot of opioid <clears throat> prescribing have medications that we can use that actually can be effective prescription medications for this very problematic issue with our patients when we prescribe opiates because this is all information that I think is very important to get out to us. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go back and look at the questions we asked our audience about how these treatments work. Uh, again, the question was, which of the following agents increase intestinal secretions? 16% voted for A, stimulants. 13% voted B for methylnaltrexone. 56% voted C for lubiprostone. Uh, and 11% voted D for naloxagol. Tony, Zorba, any comments on that? Well, as I've indicated, like lubiprostone increases secretion, so that's its primary mechanism. Um, that is not to say that stimulants don't also increase secretion, but it's not their primary mechanism. So if you're choosing one of them, it probably it would be lubiprostone because that's its primary effect. Excellent. Okay. So I think we're ready to move on uh, to our third learning obje objective, uh, which is going to focus on communicating with our patients uh, who are taking um, uh, opioids and may have OIC. With that, Zorba, as a primary care doctor, you've uh, prepared a case for us yes. to help set this yes. up. Yes, Case study, this is a typical case that I see in my office. Actually, it's a typical case that many primary care uh, practitioners also see in their office. Uh, Mr. J is a 50-year-old man. He's employed as a manual laborer. Uh, he doesn't work in a dangerous job at all. He's got moderate to severe back pain. It bothers him all the time. Uh, he's taken over-the-counter pain medications, NSAIDs, uh, acetaminophen. They just don't seem to be working. He's got a lousy diet. It's meat and potatoes. It's not the Mediterranean diet. <clears throat> he's overweight, doesn't have much of a lifestyle, doesn't exercise on a regular basis at home because when he comes home, he's tired. He's moderately obese. Uh, he'll soon be obese probably like a lot of our patients. And I'm considering prescribing an opioid for him because he's not functioning at home and he's not functioning at his job. You'll be okay. trying other things first. Absolutely. <clears throat> Always lifestyle modification. Got to exercise more. You have to try to lose some weight. I might send them to physical therapy. I always send them to physical therapy so that they can be taught properly how to do back stretches and exercise. Mm -hmm. uh, I utilize the electronic medical record. When I first see them, I give them back exercises, print them out, hand it to them, and so on. I often then, with the electronic medical record, will send them a note three to five days later. So at the visit, I actually set it up with the electronic medical record to send them a safe note into their electronic medical record mailbox. How are you doing? Tell me a little bit about your exercise. It's a way of touching the patient and then encouraging lifestyle activities. So at this point, I've done that. We're suing with Mr. J, uh, yeah. and, uh, and I haven't been successful. Okay, so 
we're going to hold that thought. I know you want to get to the case. I, I want to actually pause uh, and get feedback from our audience. So I would ask, what would you want to do or ask Mr. J before you initiate an opioid? A, how much fluid do you drink? B, what is your activity level? C, what is your stool frequency and consistency? Or D, how many servings of fiber do you take every day? So please vote now, and we'll discuss those results in a few minutes as well. So Zorba, what questions would you have as a primary care doctor to a pain specialist like myself or a GI specialist like Tony? Well, the first thing I would, I would ask of, uh, when I'm looking at pain doctors such as yourself, what would be my first step in terms of I'm going to prescribe an opioid, I've got an idea of what I'm going to prescribe, but what should I take as a first step in terms of looking at opioid-induced constipation? What would be a good first step? Would it be an over-the-counter medication? Would I be looking at a prescription medication? I'm making the assumption that every time I prescribe an opioid, every time I give a little opioid, I'm giving a little constipation. If I give a lot of opioid, I'm giving more constipation. Well, I would say, I think as a, primary, as a, a pain specialist, uh, I think first, before we even consider what agents we're going to use, really taking a step back and taking a better history. Um, uh, there's other physical findings with constipation that patients may present with and they don't realize it, like hemorrhoids uh, and, and other physical findings or things you can ask about. Um, very important to go through their medication list. I know we've alluded to that before, but take a really good history of all those other agents they're taking, whether they're the prescription strength or not. Um, many times... Uh, uh, we kind of gloss over that in the medical history, so really doing that before you're even going to think about prescribing anything. Um, also, a, a better GI history. Have they had a colonoscopy, any other GI problems in the past? Uh, you'd be surprised what patients kind of forgot about uh, as a history that may be important later on when we're trying to uh, kind of micromanage their OIC. Well, I'm sure um, you've also seen it in your office. My medical assistant will come in, take one history, and then I'll come in and ask the history, and I'll get more information. You know, so they get one bit of information and I get a second bit just because patients don't always think about things until they're interviewed more than once. Yeah, it, and, and I'm sorry, so, so when you are taking that history too, and I, I, again, not just asking the question, are you constipated, but stool frequency, consistency, uh, degree of straining. A lot of our patients are straining, and they just think that's a normal part of taking an opioid. Right. And it can obviously be a sign uh, of constipation. Um, are they ignoring a call to go to the bathroom for a bowel movement? That also can kind of feed into um, uh, some of the... Uh, uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic changes that can lead to constipation. Fiber intake again, fluid intake. Um, a lot of our chronic pain patients uh, aren't exercising, they're not moving, they're a lot more sedentary than they were before they started opioids or developed uh, chronic pain. Um, laxative use, um, all those things I think are important. So as a pain physician, I think many times I would hope that the primary care doctor can even ask a lot of those questions early on to kind of educate them correctly. Right. And I think the thing that we have to emphasize and always remember, too, is that constipation itself is very common, regardless right. of OIC, you know, of opioid use, that in the, in the general population, percentages you know, range up to 15%. Will, have, will report constipation. So we need to be in tune to that before we start the opioids and then anticipate that that will get worse if we're starting opioids. Right. And you brought up an interesting thing, sort of the call to action. You know, the best time to have that bowel movement is in the morning. You get up in the morning. You give yourself enough time. You have a breakfast that is more than just a little cup of coffee, you know, mm -hmm. and a donut, that there's something mm -hmm. in that fiber-filled breakfast. And then you give yourself enough time to actually sit down uh, on the stool and actually have a bowel movement. There are a lot of patients who just of roll out of bed if they're working uh, and don't give them enough time to do that or they're not training their bowel to have their uh, have their bowel movement at the same time because bowels are trainable right in terms of Absolutely. in terms of having your bowel movement at the same time every day 
Yes, and I think one thing that's important to remember is that uh, it's it's also the position the patient sits on on the toilet that's that can be important uh, because our our toilet is a little bit maybe a little bit too high. Some people have argued it's a little mm -hmm. bit too high because that's not how mankind would have a bowel movement, uh, but, you know, until the you know, it was developed in the late 1800s. Um, and so having the right position is important too, making sure their feet are elevated so that you can open up that rectal, anal rectal angle better and uh, patients can have better bowel movements. Nothing like having a GI specialist. Yeah. I was just going to say, that, so. you know what I was expecting him to say, let's move into squat toilets, but I don't think that's going to happen. So yeah, but it's important. There's, I mean, there's physiological changes, Absolutely. mechanical changes in a sense in yeah. positioning. Well, so, so not only having to do it in the morning after right. breakfast, but actually having yeah. the proper position, taking the right. proper time, right. not rushing, and answering the call. Mm -hmm. In this right. busy lifestyle that many people have, they're rushing off right. to work. And they really need to take a little bit of time to answer that call. But you know, this is where the electronic medical record can come in. You can have a series of questions such as that where you ask the patient and you can put it in your electronic medical record. Yes or no, your medical assistant can actually ask those questions. And then it can be quite useful in the interview for the lifestyle changes that you want to always make attendant to any prescription you give. And, and so, Tony, as a as a GI specialist, what are the symptoms that you ask the patients that maybe Zorba would uh, refer to you or I, as a pain specialist, would refer to you? What, what are good questions? Sure. So I, I think this just illustrates the fact that constipation is a, means different things to different people. And um, I think it's important that we ask patients what they mean by constipation. And I think you'll, you'll be surprised what they... Uh, with the answers you get. So I'll actually spend a few minutes uh, going through what, saying what do you actually mean by it, and then I'll go through the specific questions. And as I've alluded to earlier, it's rare for patients to say that I just want to have more bowel movements. What they really want is to have fewer symptoms. And the question is, what are those symptoms? And so there are, we break it down into both bowel symptoms, uh, which includes uh, some of which are shown in this slide here from a, from a trial, from a study, which includes straining, hard stools, and the big one is incomplete evacuation. They feel that there's still stool there, stool there, and they feel like they have to go to the bathroom all day long and can't go to the bathroom. And then some and people also report infrequent stools. Besides the bowel issues, though, patients will also report a lot of abdominal symptoms, and this is a big complaint for patients, including abdominal pain, discomfort, bloating, distension. It can be quite uncomfortable to, to have infrequent stools and have a lot of stool built up into your, into your abdomen. So we go through all of those questions and find out how it relates to them having a bowel movement. Many times those, you'll find that those symptoms get better. Uh, after a bowel movement. Yeah, it's so, interesting you said that. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, for my low back pain patients, many of those patients, their back pain actually is increased when they're constipated. There's right. Increased right. pressure in the gut right. and in the spinal So here it is. You come area. in, you know, like Mr. J, you've got low back pain. We now give you something for your low back pain, and if we don't attend to the constipation, he now has low back pain, which is a little bit better in constipation that makes his overall quality of life, you know, decreased. And that's why it's so important to attend to both of those. But you're right. Constipation uh, increases patients' perception of low back pain. And increases it. There's no doubt. So, so that this is a kind of a good segue. C can you comment, Orba, on communication and in that aspect with your patients? You know, uh, communication I think starts with asking all of the right questions. In other words, sitting there, uh, overlook, you know, thinking about I'm going to give you a medication. These are the possible side effects. Now, because this medication, an opioid, has the side effect of constipation, this is how we're going to initially handle the opioid-induced constipation. If that fails, we have other things that we can do. It's not 
your fault. People are afraid to talk about their constipation. They think they're not always being a good patient. Once again, they don't like talking about their bowels. They'll talk about their sinuses without thinking twice, but when it comes to their bowels, it's always a little bit embarrassing. And so they're, they're afraid that they're complaining about constipation when what we actually want to do is we want to encourage it, uh, encourage, that, uh, encourage that view. And there's a specific problem with older patients, certainly older patients in my area. They're just much more particular and sometimes a bit more fussy about their, uh, if they're, their bathroom etiquette. And so they're less likely to actually talk about their bathroom etiquette. And you get a feel with that with your patient as a primary care practitioner who's a bit more uh, obsessive or a little bit fussy, I would say, and who's a lot more open. And it's that open communication that allows them to tell you about it. I think that's important. Okay. So uh, let's find out what our audience uh, would do with Mr. J. Thanks, Zorba. Uh, the question was, again, what would you want to ask Mr. J before you initiate an opioid? And our results are 4% voted A, uh, how much fluid do you drink? 0% voted B, what is your activity level? And as a rehab doctor, I wish we would ask more of that. 92% uh, voted C, what is your stool frequency and consistency? Uh, and 4% voted D. Um, how, many how many servings of fiber do you take uh, every day? So Zorba, what is interesting for you in these results? Well, there, there are a couple things. First of all, uh, how many servings of fiber? That's because nobody knows what a serving is. And so, you know, what's a serving of fiber like? You know, is it a serving of bran? But I think encouraging our patients to eat a more fiber-filled uh, breakfast, especially in the morning, talking to them about, about fruits and vegetables, I think that's really important, and we don't do enough of it. Uh, and you're right about the 50% for physical activity. We should always ask about physical activity because it's important with our chronic pain patients, very important because it gives us an idea of whether or not we're, uh, we're effective. And also, we want to tell them, if you exercise more, you're actually, it's going to help improve your GI complaints also. Mm -hmm. And people like to hear that, and if they don't hear it from us, they're not going to learn about it. Tony, any comments about the results? No, I, I think, you know, you certainly want to ask about all of these, but uh, probably the most important would be the frequency and consistency if I had to ask one uh, one question to figure out if they were had underlying constipation. I, I just want to comment on, on, the, on the fiber because we didn't really talk about, much about fiber and its role in constipation. Um, and, the, and what happens with fiber is that uh, for every gram of fiber that you eat, you end up having an output of about two and a half grams. And that is both liquid and increase in bacteria uh, with it. So it is true that the more fiber you take, the more stools you'll have. Okay. What's not true is that patients that have slow transit, in the case of OIC, which is usually slowing down the transit, that they'll have better symptoms because oftentimes um, they'll have more bloating and gas because more bacteria fermentation will occur. And so a lot of times it may not work uh, as well as we would like. Uh, but that being said, well, oftentimes in combination with an osmotic or um, in fiber can be very helpful. And the question always is on the dose. And you, you said it right, which what's a serving? And that's the hardest thing we do in our, in our history is figuring out how much fiber someone takes. Every, most of my patients overestimate it. They believe that their salad that they eat for lunch uh, has plenty of fiber, when mm -hmm. in fact it really doesn't have that much fiber. The apple mm -hmm. um, is sufficient. Really, it's only a few grams of fiber. And then, you know, the recommendation is about 25 to 30 grams uh, per day. The average U.S. intake is about 10 to 12 grams uh, per day. So what we tell patients and what clinical studies have shown in chronic idiopathic constipation is that it, to get the real effect, uh, you need to go up high on the dose, like the 10 to 15 grams of added fiber, which is very hard to do for patients. I've tried it myself, and it's very 
uh, very difficult to do. It's filling and it does cause increased gas and bloating. So a lot of patients won't, won't do that. So in and of itself is probably not that effective for patients, but can be used in combination. And that's the dose you want to shoot for. And I think that this makes me uh, kind of remember, I have patients that maybe just use fiber uh, and Metamucil products and things like that. Do you think sometimes they can make the condition worse because they're not using these other agents? For well, gas and bloating, yeah. yeah, with the gas and bloating particularly. Mm -hmm. um, and again, studies have shown, the few studies have been sh done have shown that if you have a pelvic floor dysfunction, in other words, if you can't relax your pelvic floor, or you have slow transit constipation, which is which sort of OIC mimics slow transit constipation, uh, that uh, fiber is not that effective in that group. And they tend to complain about gas and bloating and other symptoms, sometimes making it worse. Right? Yeah, so, I'm, and, I'm, and this is where a good history, including what you're taking for fiber, right. and whether or not you're taking psyllium, uh, and a good discussion with the patient really makes a difference so that you can figure out exactly what they need to improve their symptoms. Yeah, and it's interesting yeah. you talked about pelvic floor uh, dysfunction. A lot of our chronic low back pain patients can have pelvic floor weakness, uh, and that also can kind of feed into their constipation. Uh, so yeah. all these things overlap. Uh, so, uh, so with that, we're going to kind of move on to summarize some of our clinical connections. Uh, Zorba, um, we went through a number of different areas. Uh, can you just kind of summarize the things sure. you, as a primary care doctor, helped us with today? So the prevalence of constipation increases with the duration of opioid treatment. So it doesn't decrease. It's not something that we get used to. It actually increases over time in chronic non-cancer pain patients. Uh, opioid receptors are in the entire GI tract. Uh, that's important to know. It's a direct result of stimulation of those opioid receptors. Opioid uh, decreases secretions, decreases motility, increases sphincteric tone, and decreases the defecation reflex. And that constipation is common. Reported up to 8 out of 10 patients who are on chronic opioid therapy. Okay. Thanks, Dorba. Tony, any other uh, kind of summary from your comments as a sure. GI specialist? Um, and I just want to reiterate uh, what Zorba said, which is that tolerance does not happen with opioids for the side effects. But unlike some of the other GI side effects where tolerance um, do does occur, you, you know, symptoms tend to go away. You don't see that with constipation. So, sure, we've, we've emphasized that non-prescription treatments are really the first-line uh, treatments for patients with OIC and for chronic idiopathic constipation. This includes lifestyle modification, the laxatives, both the osmotic and stimulant laxatives, and sometimes um, uh, rectal interventions can be helpful, particularly suppositories if the stools are particularly are hard in the, within, in the rectum. Um, we discussed two, two major classes uh, that are FDA approved for OIC, including uh, the chloride uh, secretagogues or the CLC2 activated lubiprostone and the Pomores. And the two uh, drugs are um, methylnaltrexone and naloxagol that are currently FDA approved. We also discussed how it was important to engage in the conversation with patients about their bowel patterns before initiating uh, opioid therapy. And as I've iterated, uh, as I've already said, that, that constipation is common um, in the general population. So about 10% of your patients will have constipation to begin with, and it's important that, we, that you understand that beforehand, before starting opioids. And then um, you want to anticipate that the constipation will develop um, in someone that's on an opioid, and you want to start uh, therapies at the beginning. You would start initiate, initiate therapy at the beginning when starting the opioids in many of these patients. Okay, Good thank points. you. So, Tony and Zorba, uh, that was very useful discussion. I appreciate the way uh, you're able to discuss the evidence and obviously translate that evidence then into our clinical practice. Um, so let's summarize now uh, uh, for the audience. Um, Zorba, um, you went over some of the uh, key clinical points. Uh, Tony went over those key clinical points. Um, we now want to kind of go through the questions here. Um, let's see. And so, 
um, so, so that we can find out what areas would uh, we would like additional um, education. So let me ask you one last polling question in the audience. Um, what area do you need further education on related to OIC? A, diagnosis of OIC, B, treatment selection for OIC, C, patient communication plan, uh, or D, prevention and monitoring of OIC. Please vote now. So thank you both um, for joining uh, me here today. I appreciate the important messages you brought uh, for our audience and the discussion uh, was excellent. Uh, we're almost out of time uh, in our regular broadcast, but I want to ask our audience to stay with us for our after show segment uh, where we will answer the questions and discuss your clinical cases. Welcome back to Insights into Assessment, Prevention, and Management of Opioid-Induced Constipation. I appreciate your time. We've got a number of questions here, which I'll uh, give to my guests, Zorba and Tony. Uh, the first question, I think, to Tony, what was the dose of lubiprostone in the Phase three studies that was shown to be most effective? Uh, so in the Phase three trials, the only dose that was studied was 24 micrograms uh, twice daily. Uh, the 8 microgram twice daily dose is available uh, for IBS with constipation. That is for the, uh, that's its FDA-approved dose. So there are two doses available, but only one study was 24 micrograms twice daily. 24 micrograms twice daily. Okay. Um, another question I think I'll like to get feedback from both of you. Can you comment on probiotics? Can they be effective? Well, uh, probiotics are, are an interesting class in and of itself. They're not regulated like drugs are, uh, and, and there are whole issues with all of the nutraceuticals that are out there, including probiotics, uh, in that uh, when you do, when you actually look at either uh, consumer reports or you look at other independent organizations that actually analyze what are in the capsules and tablets, they're not always what they say they are on the label. So in other words, there's no quality control to speak of, uh, and therefore you don't know what you're getting when you're, when you're, when you're taking those pills or capsules. And it's, it's, it's a major problem. Uh, when we just look broadly at nutraceuticals, uh, the New York Attorney General has uh, looked at a number of companies and have said they have to do cease and desist in some of their nutraceuticals because they don't have the material in them they said they have when the uh, New York State actually did independent investigation. So I think it's problematic. Patients don't know what they're actually getting when they're getting a probiotic in a capsule. Tony, your comments on probiotics? Well, first, it hasn't been studied in OIC, right, there, that I'm aware of any, any trials. Um, with regard to uh, other GI issues, particularly constipation, as we're discussing here, and irritable bowel with constipation, there have been small trials uh, that, uh, that have been conducted, some of which showing positive results, uh, but you know, uh, the effect size is relatively small. Um, I think the one that's probably been best studied uh, is Bifidobacter infantis, um, which is sold commercially at uh, most uh, drugstores. And uh, there have been a couple of trials that have been dose-ranging trials showing some efficacy in IBS in general, but mm -hmm. not, not specific for IBS with constipation. Uh, there have been, again, smaller trials. Um, probably the other one that's been most commonly seen um, for our audience is, uh, is some of the yogurts that are sold commercially mm -hmm. um, that have, are promoting, being promoted for IBS uh, with constipation have shown improvement in, in, um, 
and, and, and transit time in the GI tract. At higher doses, though, and you'll see the advertisements uh, saying that it's uh, generally two to three servings per day uh, in, in those studies. So the data is not that great uh, mm -hmm. for it. And you bring up that uh, the yogurt is actually what I recommend to, our, to my patients with that. And if they're going to take a probiotic capsule, that they go to one of the uh, companies that are independent labs that test these and only use a probiotic that I think has been tested by an independent lab yeah. because, like I said, they're all over the place in what they actually have in them. And I'm sure our audience will be wondering what that probiotic is. Uh, it's actually uh, Bifidobacter regularis is its name that's located in there. And it's not, uh, it is sold independent of the yogurt, but uh, but not the specific strain that's associated with it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think you need to get the yogurt if that's with, with that probiotic in it. Okay, so I think well, I'm going to actually skip to a different question because it brought up some of the points that you just spoke about with regards to food. Um, our comment here is it's, it, it is good to look at a med list for uh, additive effects of constipation, but don't forget to look at the diet. Uh, bananas are very constipating. They're often told to eat them for potassium when using diuretics, for example. Um, they, all, uh, they also know fruit will help ease constipation symptoms, but bananas actually can make them worse. Um, so about other foods or things that may actually make constipation worse, or do you agree with that? Hmm. It's a good question. There's cer certainly the cruciferous vegetables will give people more gas. That's a common thing that they complain about. Um, do bananas give constipation? Is there any proof about bananas constipation? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, okay. I've heard that as well. I mean, well, it's so an old doctor's tale. I'm not tale. disagreeing with that. <laughs> okay. I'm, not, I'm just not aware of any data <laughs> associated with that. No data. Okay. I have That's heard okay. that before. Something to consider. That's good. Okay, so, um, and there was actually a follow-up question. question that's, that's what you get as a specialist, don't you? So uh, just a follow-up question about lubiprostone. It says, is, is there data to show that lubiprostone is safe for chronic use? What's the second well, question? Well, I mean, safe is a lo loaded term, of course. Yeah. Um, there, is, um, there, there are uh, one-year trials, the, the safety trials, the open-label trials, uh, showing that, the, uh, that there's no new adverse events uh, that, were un um, that occurred during that one year. Uh, the overall rate of adverse events uh, most adverse events tend to occur right when you start the medication. There are fewer as time goes on, but they're the same adverse events we've seen. And what are the uh, common ones you see after, since you just said it's the same ones. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, diarrhea, mm -hmm. cramps, um, abdominal pain, um, you know, and, and nausea are the ones that you tend to see. But nothing uh, out of the ordinary. So safe is a loaded term. I'm mm -hmm. not aware of, um, you know, s um, significant serious adverse events associated mm -hmm. with it. It has been on the market for many years. Uh, my experience is that it's pretty well tolerated by patients. Um, that's actually our third question. Can you talk more about how OIC happens? Our residents are not clear on how OIC is tied to a decrease in fluid in the colon. So uh, um, there, there are mu opioid receptors throughout the GI tract and throughout the lining of the GI tract, but particularly in the enteric nervous system. Um, and there, it, it can slow down motility. So it can, it can literally cause the contractions that, that normally occur for digestion, both in the upper GI tract as well as the lower GI tract. Um, and by decreasing that motility or the contractions or the, or the movement of, of food as well as stool in the colon, um, you, you allow for uh, greater time for the for, for reabsorption, and particularly of water within the colon, and that's particular. That's the 
primary mechanism of, of, um, of constipation in harder stools. There are other uh, mechanisms as well. I alluded to decrease in sensations. Patients don't have the urge to go uh, to the bathroom as much because they have decreased sensations in the rectum, among other uh, consequences. But the motility is part of the major. And that's where timing your bowel movement, you know, counseling your patient mm -hmm. uh, to uh, perhaps do this in the morning, give them enough time, making sure the stool is at the proper height and so on. Mm -hmm. That's really where lifestyle makes a big difference in our counseling our patients about that. Okay, so speaking of counseling, Zorba, uh, this question I think is, is perfect because we talked about a lot of different medications, over-the-counter, uh, FDA-approved agents. Uh, this asks, would you look at what would you look at for prescribing a, a treatment plan for OIC prophylactically? Uh, uh, what would be the over-the-counter <coughs> products possible? Well, you know, the first thing that I, you know, the first thing that I would look at would be uh, I would look at a psilocybin product. That's just something I. I naturally look at, or I would, uh, you know, I would look at a, a medication such as Miralax, which is uh, polyethylene glycol, something like that to actually, I mean, those are usually the first steps that I go to. What is your... And what's the dose then step? for the polyethylene glycol? Uh, polyethylene, I think it's 17 grams, a little scoop, it's 17 grams in a scoop. And I often use that because I find my patients like that better. Uh, they don't like, uh, they don't like psyllium as much because of the taste that it gives them after the psyllium. They're more likely to tolerate one versus the other. And, uh, you know, just on an anecdotal basis, I don't know which one initially works better. I just know which one they're more likely to take mm -hmm. uh, with that. Is there one you think that's better than another? No, I, to start I agree. With? I agree. I, and I'm not aware of one being particularly mm -hmm. better than the other. We tend to use polyethylene glycol because it is over the counter, relatively cheap, and it allows patients to titrate the dose right. pretty easily, right. which is they can take which as is, much as they want to, and it makes a difference. Yes, <laughs> the, the as much as you want to is, is probably relative because most people after they get beyond. Uh, to those capfuls or to, you know two seventeen gram doses a day, my experience is that they tend to get more bloated and distended, and mm -hmm. that's that is a, a rate limiting effect of, uh, or a side effect of the of the medication uh, that patients don't like, particularly when they get to the higher doses. Um, so we tend to have once they get beyond that, uh, we usually we'll move on to something else mm -hmm. or add something to it. So uh, with the poly, I think like all. Should they dose it at the beginning uh, every day, and then they can go to every other day, or do you start twice a day? Uh, no, you usually start low in the dose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, I start once a day. And it depends on their you know, baseline yeah. frequency of stool yeah. and consistency, but um, yeah, usually you start once a day. Then I also put that in my after-visit summary that I hand to the patient. You know, start out once a day. After five to seven days, if that doesn't work, then go up to twice a day after that. And so uh, it's very important, I think, to give the information to the patient afterwards. Whatever you hand them is more likely to be read than what they actually get from the pharmacy or look at on the package. Or try to remember what you told them. So and the converse and is then, true, too, the reduced mm -hmm. dose. Right. If, the, if their right. stools are loose. And, uh, mm -hmm. Polyethylene glycol is going to soften the stool, so I told them to look at the consistency of the stool and, and judge it based on that. Um, any of the other stimulants, Senna, any of those other things that you recommend? It? Many times I think I see patients that maybe try something for constipation once every couple of days, uh, and they kind of mm -hmm. underdose some of those agents. Yeah, what so would we, you recommend? Yeah. Uh, well, Senna being the most, the mm -hmm. most Exactly, and that's probably the gentlest of yeah. the stimulant laxatives. And, and, uh, and as I've alluded to, we oftentimes will combine it with uh, mm -hmm. some low-dose right. polyethylene glycol. Yeah. And I tend to stay, I stay away from bisacodyl, I mean, except in, the, you know, in, in, a, in an unusual circumstance. You know, I, in my thought, it's not something I want my patient to be on every day because it's just a little bit more difficult. Tony, do you think it's unsafe to use bisacodyl every day then? And uh, just I don't think it's unsafe. There's mm -hmm. no evidence that it's unsafe. Um, but, it, you know, as Orvis said, I don't think patients, uh, it tends to cause cramps and discomfort. Mm -hmm. So unless they really need it, uh, most patients won't like taking right. it uh, on a regular basis. Uh, we tend to stay with the Senna mm -hmm. first. Um, 
And I think it's probably worth uh, mentioning um, why patients don't like taking stimulants um, and you know, why, why do they fail mm -hmm. from it? Because it's not just that they won't have a bowel movement, but in fact they'll have cramps. And, cramp and in the few studies right. that have been done with uh, stimulant laxatives such as bisacodyl, um, you know, large percentage of patients withdraw from the study. And we talked about small mm -hmm. numbers in these studies and, you know, in, the, um, in the phase three trials I presented, but in, those st in that study there was you know, a quarter of the patients withdrew. Uh, because of side effects, and include abdominal pain, uh, severe diarrhea associated with it, it can cause incontinence as well, and it's the lack of predictability mm -hmm. uh, that patients really don't like in yeah. my practice. And polyethylene glycol is much more predictable. Yeah. I mean, don't you? It, it is, and, and but I don't want to leave, yeah, leave everybody thinking that these th that these medications mm -hmm. work in all the patients. Mm -hmm. I think that they should be tried first, mm -hmm. uh, but understand that the fact that for many patients it doesn't give them the satisfaction that they're looking for, or it's unpredictable, or they're having side effects, and you have to be aware of those side effects and understand that that's the cause of their pain. So you know, uh, you bring up a really good point. Here it is: you're prescribing an opioid, and then you're giving them information, uh, telling them what to do for opioid-induced constipation when they come back for their first refill because they have to come back. If it's uh, oxycodone, hydrocodone, they have to come back and actually physically get uh, the prescription. That's the time that they should, uh, either on the electronic medical record, to mention to you how they're doing in terms of their constipation. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good first touch uh, when after that first prescription before it's refilled, and it's a good time for us as primary care doctors to actually intervene. Okay, so I, I think this, this question was somewhat related to that. Um, the question states, uh, as a nurse practitioner, I think we too often don't ask about bowel habits in our patients at baseline, uh, and so we can't pick up on OIC. What are your comments about that? She's Again, right, or mm -hmm. he's right. Yes. It's either she, they absolutely know as a nurse, no matter who it is, we don't, uh, we don't discuss bowel habits the way that we should. And it's really imperative for us to do it when we're prescribing an opioid because we don't have a baseline. Their baseline may be one bowel movement every two days or every three days, and so that, that, that's going to be different than somebody who has two bowel movements a mm -hmm. day. I think this next question is um, for Tony. It says, as a gastroenterologist, um, I think you glossed over the importance of talking with patients about not only how many bowel movements they have, have but ask about consistency and straining. Can you comment on that? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I guess we didn't spend a lot of time mm -hmm. on that, so it's a good point. Um, I think it is. It's very important when we when we talk to patients. And um, I think what I was alluding to is that I spent a lot of time discussing. You know, when someone presents with constipation, asking them what they mean by mm -hmm. constipation, and then uh, delving deeper into um, you know the straining, the incomplete evacuation, uh, the consistency of the stool. Uh, that they have the frequency of the stools, what what they're using to initiate bowel movements. Um, we spend a lot of time on their diet, uh, the amount of, amount of fiber they're taking, other types of foods that they're taking. Um, all those things are, are very important and a big part of what we do. And so that's a good point. Uh, are there uh, questionnaires or any other tools that physicians may use to, uh, to help kind of facilitate that discussion? Um, there are, you know, constipation co uh, questionnaires that, that are available. We don't personally use them in clinic because um, I, I feel I'd rather hear from the patient myself um, about that. But I'm, but I'm a gastroenterologist, so right. I like that uh, stuff. So there, there are, but I think you know, you can all, I, you know, asking them is just is probably the best way. You to know, but uh, but that's a good point. Just like uh, in our clinic, we often use the PHQ-9 in terms of screening for depression. Uh, it is something that may be very useful to institute in various clinics to have ten bowel questions that are asked automatically when a patient comes in so that we can actually yeah. look at it and grade them. And I think that's something that's coming up in the future, you know, some sort of validated questionnaire uh, that would be useful for that. Yeah. I think the practice of medicine is going to change very in the near future and there will be a lot of that going yes. on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so I, I, we did get a question about uh, what did we do with Mr. J? What was the outcome? So, what Zorba, did, you presented uh, <laughs> the case. Tell us how he did. Well, <laughs> Mr. J, we gave uh, Mr. J uh, an opioid analgesic, gave him some hydrocodone uh, to help with his pain, gave him some over-the-counter, gave him uh, poly, you know, polyethylene glycol uh, to use, and, uh, and he did okay. He lost uh, five pounds of weight over a one-year period, but I think that's probably because he starved himself before he came back to my office at the end of a year. But, uh, but he did okay with that. And lifestyle changes were, were the key issue with him also. It's a matter of really going to physical therapy. Are you doing exercises outside of your work? I think that makes a big difference in back pain. Okay. That's Mr. J. He didn't have the optimal diet, and he didn't lose the 50 pounds he needed. So there's certain things you want him to change, but uh, you can only take what you get. <laughs> okay, so uh, this question actually is a little different. Um, what about patients in the hospital or after surgery? Would you prescribe them? What, what would you prescribe with regards to constipation? Or are you limited with uh, post-operative patients? So I presume this is a patient who uh, are receiving narcotics? Correct. Uh, yes. um, so that's what I would assume. Yeah, mm -hmm. I would assume as well. Uh, well, it depends on the constipation. I think the treatments mm -hmm. are pretty similar. Mm -hmm. um, depends if they're eating or not eating. Uh, if they've developed an ileus um, as well. But uh, that being said, um, you know, you know the, it can be used if it's if it's mm -hmm. uh, if you think it's opioid induced uh, constipation, and it probably will work quicker than some of the other um, osmotic laxatives mm -hmm. in that population, especially if they have an underlying ileus. Um, so it's not unreasonable to use it. And post-op constipation is common. Is it yes, common? Thing? In general, yes. Okay. Um, what about bloating associated with constipation? Do any of these treatments um, reduce bloating that we talked about? Um, so the bloating is, is a very common symptom, uh, both in constipation as well as in most functional disorders, including like irritable bowel syndrome, uh, where almost most patients will report bloating. Um, there, you know, bloating is sometimes measured in these clinical trials. Um, and um, not, I'm not specifically aware in OIC them uh, bloating being uh, measured, but in chronic idiopathic constipation, um, you know, the, it has been included in many of the trials uh, that have been associated with it. There's even one study uh, with uh, linaclotide, which is the only trial that I'm aware of, where bloating, uh, where, where patients were chosen to have um, uh, a priori to have bloating to enter into the trial, have moderate to severe bloating to start, and it did improve bloating. Okay. Um, this is, maybe we touched on this, but maybe to clarify, Tony, uh, this question is for you. Um, it says, in some patients, bulking agents or fiber may worsen their condition of OIC. Um, what are your comments, or is there a rationale? Yeah, so uh, mm -hmm. I think it's um, sort of alluded to it earlier, which is that um, in, in patients with slow transit constipation or those with pelvic floor issues, um, you know, the, there is a study that showed that fiber can make things, they don't improve very much in fiber. Very few people, relatively few people improve. And the people that are going to improve with fiber usually have normal transit constipation. And this is not OIC, by the way. This is in, in chronic idiopathic constipation. Um, its mechanism for worsening bloating is, is this is, this is what my assumption is that it's probably from um, the bacteria digesting the fiber uh, and creating gas as an output. So when we talk about uh, uh, the fibers that cause gas and bloating, usually we're talking about the natural fibers. Uh, there, you know, of course, there have been two products that have been formulated that uh, are less prone to digestion by the bacteria, and that is a methylcellulose, which is a semi-synthetic fiber, uh, and uh, polycarbophil, which is a completely synthetic fiber. Mm -hmm. And they were designed for that very purpose of uh, being 
methylcellulose is being partially degraded, uh, being able to be degraded by bacteria and polyethylene glycol. Uh, I'm sorry, um, it's not polyethylene glycol, it's... Um, I'm blanking on the I didn't just say that. That's I okay. just, <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> the synthetic uh, The synthetic fiber, fiber yes, <laughs> which has been designed uh, to not be digested. And so you may see um, you know, advertisements saying that there's less gas and bloating for that very reason. There aren't very good studies, though. And, and again, there aren't very good studies, meaning that there's no dramatic difference. That there, aren't very good stu- there aren't studies. There aren't studies. There aren't studies. I should just say, studies. like, that. there aren't studies to prove that okay. fact. The, the uh, semi-synthetics uh, and the synthetics th- that, that it caused less mm-hmm. gas and bloating. Yeah. But the, but you know, the, the, indivi- the rationale is there. And there are individual mm-hmm. differences, you know. You know, within, you know, for different people, they may react differently. Yeah. Poly- polycarbophil, thank you. Polycarbophil, see. I give your mind a chance to come back to it. No constipation jokes here. Okay. So this, you just mentioned this in I'm glad we have a question here. It says, can you elaborate more about slow transit constipation, the diagnosis and treatment? Oh, sure. So, um, so when someone presents with constipation... Um, and this is separate from opioids. This is separate okay. from opioids. Mm-hmm. This is in, in just someone who presents with constipation. Um, when we usually, you can think of them in three broad categories. Um, and you know, these are somewhat arbitrary, but this is the way we think about it. Uh, we think of those patients with slow transit, Constipation, those with normal transit constipation, and those people that have pelvic floor issues or pelvic floor dyssynergia. And there can be overlap between the dyssynergia. Mm-hmm. They can have either normal or slow transit. Of course, slow and, slow and normal transit are completely separate because it's based on a definition. Mm-hmm. Um, so and it's just what it, th- what it says. It's, it's the transit through the, through the colon is slower than normals. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the normal values would be expected. And um, it turns out that, that even in chronic, idiopathic consti- in chronic idiopathic constipation, that the vast majority of people are normal transit, and a smaller subset will have slow transit or pelvic floor dyssynergia. Uh, uh, now, with regard to OIC, there aren't very good studies uh, that have looked at the general population of OIC, so I can't you know, be sure that, that most people are slow transit. I think I alluded to the fact that the mechanism is probably slow transit, at least in my mind, but there aren't very good studies looking at the, you know, the prevalence of slow transit in, in large groups of patients on, on opioids, at least that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, th- that's sort of the distinguishing feature. I think clinically what we see in chronic idiopathic constipation, when they present with slow transit, they generally tend to be people that have very infrequent stools. And they don't typically have a strong urge to go to the bathroom. They're not mm-hmm. sitting on the toilet three or four times a day trying to pass stools mm-hmm. like someone with dyssynergia would be. Okay. Um, now, this question uh, is, is good because I don't know if we touched on this. Uh, do you find certain opioids are more, more likely uh, to be constipating than others? No, I don't think so. I think of codeine as more constipating, more constipating, but I don't use very much codeine. I think, from my clinical experience, tramadol is kind of a weaker opioid. We maybe maybe see less constipation. Um, What about like a fentanyl transdermal system that's, you know, uh, absorbed through the skin to the bloodstream? It's not actually passing to the gut. Theoretically, is there less constipation with those products or still a central effect? I mean, I think you're still stimulating the the mu opioid receptors, so it's going to produce the same thing. I think there are individual, there may be individual differences, but other than codeine, I don't think of one as being more constipating. I mean, some people do report yeah. that it's less constipating. Yeah. But I don't, th- I don't think there are any, there's no study showing one. And once again, there are these individual differences. Does that answer the question? Uh, I think so. Yeah, we actually had two <laughs> as more questions. As best as we can. The same question, so that's good. <laughs> you guys hit one, one answer for three questions. Um, okay, so... 
Uh, this um, next question it states, I try to talk to patients about lifestyle modification, encourage weight loss, and healthy diet to manage constipation. Is CIC linked to ob obesity? Um, would you recommend starting patients on a bulking agent first, or should we go to prescription medications first? So, so yeah, so there's a number of questions there. I think the first part was trying to talk to patients about lifestyle modification, encouraging weight loss. Um, is is um, CIC uh, linked to obesity? Anything? So let me just talk about the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when I tell when I have smokers in my office, I tell them all to quit smoking, and I give them at least one minute. Sometimes a lot more than that. One out of twenty will quit. That's all. 19 out of 20 statistically will not quit. Maybe 2 out of 20 will quit if I'm really good. Uh, but that shouldn't stop me from talking about smoking. And if I didn't do that, all of my patients would, you know, you know, many of them would continue to smoke. So, you know, we may fail with lifestyle with many of our patients. We tell them to lose weight, eat, eat a better diet. But some of our patients, we hit them at just the right time and they actually make changes. And mm -hmm. so I think it's always important to discuss lifestyle, especially when it comes to anything that will improve their quality of life. So obesity, exercise, Size, discussing it when it comes from us, it has our imprimatur. I think that's a key issue. And I, and I think it, I work in a, a functional restoration program, so we're getting patients active with physical therapy, occupational therapy, exercise, and, and a lot of times they're being introduced to that together in many of the educational things that mm -hmm. we also add at that time. Uh, like you said, some patients really link on to that. I'm always surprised that right. some of these basic education things that we present later on when they're quote unquote a chronic pain patient. Um, if that would have been introduced earlier on, uh, uh, there could have been some benefits. So, you know, I, the, the patients, some patients do want to change, and, right. and, and we can't there is that tell, opportunity. We cannot always tell who uh, those patients yeah. are. Sometimes mm -hmm. they'll tell us, sometimes it won't, but it really is, uh, it's important for us to step in and do that and to introduce that to them always. We talk a lot about the exercise, and I know the um, um, question was specific on CIC and obesity, uh, about whether or not exercise and uh, can change your, your gut function. There, um, you know, we we know that increasing your uh, increasing exercise does cause an increase in movement of the GI tract. But the studies uh, showing that mo like mild to moderate exercise is probably not that significant. Um, uh, it doesn't have that significant effect in most patients. If you do rigorous exercise, um, you tend to get pretty good bowel movements. Um, so. Uh, well, thanks for covering that. That was a, a, a tough question. Um, another question just came in. Can you recommend, trying to go back to probiotics here, uh, can you recommend a probiotic and a prescription agent? Or I think you said you think they should be Well, I always go or, there, uh, you know, I look at, uh, there, there are a couple of websites, a couple of company groups that I go to. I go to Consumer Reports. <clears throat> They're okay. independent. They've been around for a long time. They do a good job. Uh, there's another organization that I go to, go to. I don't verify it. I don't own stock in it. Mm -hmm. It's called Consumer Lab. It's either consumerlab.com or consumerlab.org. And they do independent testing of nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals. Costs money to get on there. I think it's $25 a year. There's no advertising. They do independent studies of many, many things. So, for instance, in fish oil, uh, which is, has nothing to do with this, but in fish oil they found out a lot of the fish oil was rancid, didn't have the proper amount of omega-3s that they were mm -hmm. talking about. I think getting an independent group to actually verify it is an issue because it's not regulated by the FDA. Okay. Um, another question, again, we alluded a little bit to this, but it might be good to clarify um, for the audience. Um, the question is, would you address the use of stool softeners as a preventive measure, and which ones would you use initially if you're starting a patient on opioids? 
I don't use them very much. I mean, I use them maybe with an opioid, but I'm always, you know, I, I, I'm much more likely to go to, uh, you know, uh, you know, to polyethylene glycol than to for stimulants versus ketone. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think they work, so uh, okay. I, I generally don't use them. That being said, mm -hmm. some patients um, will, will say that they're very effective, and I don't, uh, I don't uh, mind them taking it. They're relatively mm -hmm. cheap. Um, you know, if they don't aspirate, uh, they should, shouldn't cause significant side effects, uh, but I don't think there's much data to support it. And there are, mm -hmm. you know, the limited studies in, in CIC with um, stool solvents show that they are no better than fiber. And uh, are you... Same colase or what other stool softeners then? That's Mostly the only, colase. I think that's the only one okay. that's in the market, yeah. Um, uh, this is a good question. In an obsessive compulsive person with low activity level and chronic distended abdomen, possibly chronic constipation, what's the recommended treatment with that patient in the case of laxatives? So uh, maybe the question is. If they have an well, one of the things, if they're obsessive compulsive, is is to try to actually, you know, attend to that. <clears throat> Either by, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy can be very useful in a patient such as that. Finding a good behavioral therapist to actually discuss what that is. That might be one part of, uh, you know, situation for somebody who's truly obsessive. Um, yeah, I mean, that's it's a tough question to answer because I'm not sure there's one recommended treatment. I think uh, if they're I think the first thing I would try to do is figure out whether their extended, their extended abdomen is related to stool. And uh, if I saw that patient in the office, I probably would get a, a KUB or maybe do a chronic transit study uh, with like a SITS marker uh, to assess that. Because if it really were stool that was causing the distension, uh, then I would want to treat that patient. And what I would do um, is probably give them a pretty potent laxative like a mag citrate or something very relatively potent to clean them out and then start them on some underlying polyethylene glycol mm -hmm. or um, you know, something like, probably that probably might probably be the first thing I would try and then move my way up depending on their uh, response. I'm not sure about the question about obsessive compulsive because I think that has a, an important component and that, you know, there's different levels of obsessive compulsive but um, I, in those patients I also would think about pelvic floor issues because um, they oftentimes as a, uh, in their childhood didn't learn to defecate properly um, so that may be an issue as well. Uh, so I, you know, if they didn't have a good response to treatment, I probably would start an evaluation of that as well. No, um, no I've had patients with obsessive compulsive traits mm -hmm. uh, uh, that were overusing laxatives. Um, have you seen that with patients taking excessive laxatives? Uh, that, that does happen, unfortunately, okay. yeah. Right. But that is really a, a minority of patients, uh, in, at least in my experience. Okay. Um, and, and I guess another question, uh, do you see patients with severe constipation that may have diarrhea around kind of a, an impaction in, uh, uh, or you start to treat their constipation and they have diarrhea first. I mean, is there a pattern sometimes with people that are severely constipated that uh, we should be aware of? Well, I think you, you have to be, uh, um, you always have to think about uh, whether there's an impaction in a patient that's presenting mm -hmm. with diarrhea or, and or incontinence. Um, that's particularly true in the less verbal, less mobile patient that are highest risk for fecal impaction. Um, so that does that does happen, and I'm always surprised by um, you know the number of patients that we see. But we see a pretty refractory group of uh, of people. So that so that certainly can happen. You should be aware of it, uh, and certainly consider doing rectal exams in your patients, especially if they can't communicate well. Okay, so we'll have to end on that note. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I really want to thank our faculty, Zorba Pastor, Tony Lembo. This has been excellent. I appreciate your time. Um, I want to thank CME Outfitters. Uh, and encourage the audience to go to cmeoutfitters.com to check out um, some of the other educational activities. 
hopefully um, in this hour and a half you're able to uh, gain a better knowledge of treatment, assessment of opioid-induced constipation, uh, and hopefully the things we learned today are going to help uh, our patients uh, with their care, obviously their quality of life. Uh, so thank you very much.